0: Welcome to the Speckled Truth Podcast. This is the only show dedicated to the conservation of the trophy trout population from the East Coast to the Gulf Coast. Here, we go below the surface to discuss what happens when science and anglers work together for a cause. So gear up with the crew as they talk about all things big speckled trout. Get ready for the slimy, salty truth, better known as the Speckled Truth. Hey, everyone, I want to welcome you back to the Speckled Truth podcast. Uh, Captain Chris here with a very, 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 very special guest, Mr. Mike Blackwood. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. So uh, we, we've met uh, before uh, over at the Ananias Fishing Club when I, you graciously uh, extended the invite, you and David Bjork, uh, down here in Corpus Christi to come and talk to you about Speckled Truth. And um, after talking with you that night... And again, kind of being a student of trout fishing in general and trophy trout fishing and, and knowing that you held what was once the uh, the Texas state record speckled trout, which we'll talk about here in a sec, but listening to some of the stories that you told um, about kind of your fishing endeavor in navigating the waterways of, of Texas, of the Texas coast back then, it was insanely intriguing and I'm hopeful that uh, today you can go ahead and share some of those stories so but before we get into the meat of the discussion mike why don't you go ahead and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself well i am uh, going to be 78 years old next month yes sir
1: and so i'm not a youngster but i've been very lucky and fishing and, and hunting in the outdoors helps you stay younger that's one of the most important things to pass on to anybody is stay busy there's a, there's a rule in life is if you don't use it, you will lose it. And that has to do with your brain, your muscles, and everything. So everybody just keeps going. Find something you love, fishing, hunting, painting. I don't know what it is, but just keep going. so uh, But I have a background. I'm, I was a microbiologist in school and uh, did, a lot, did a little bit of research in viral genetics and so forth back years ago. And from that, I ended up uh, at University of Texas. And uh, then I after I left and graduated, I got out and... Didn't know what I was going to do with life. I decided I didn't want to be a physician like my father. So I uh, ended up uh, checking into, I had a lot of people say, well, have you looked at being in pharmaceuticals? So I went to work first for one company and then another. So mm-hmm. 40 years after that, I'm now uh, retired from a, a company that was called Novartis. Some people may be familiar with the name. It's, yes, sir. It's, but anyway, uh, that kept me in the in the medical field and in the scientific field. So a lot of the ways that I uh, do everything is I'm always looking at the scientific end of it of how do you do Mm -hmm. a better job uh, of whatever you're doing it makes it more entertaining and makes you better at it and Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes you get taught very (laughs) very uh, unfortunate lessons of the not exactly doing this the right way and you need to change what you do. So anyway that's how I got into it and uh, so I've been fishing in the Salt water, fresh water, and I also hunt and I bow hunt. I love to bow hunt for elk. Yes, sir. And uh, I have, so basically, the outdoors has always been a, a great learning area. But uh, at this point, I'm still going. I have lots of friends that well, we either go in my little boat. I've got, I'm shall we say, boat poor. I've got three boats, only two that I use. <laughs> yes, sir. My little whaler that everybody calls the bathtub because it's a ten footer. And but I can quickly put that in the water and uh, go check out some shallow water areas and and uh, that's that's worked out well in a Texas skiff that allows me to run even shallower if I need to, but I don't run shallower consistently, but that helps really shallow boats only help you get on plane if you need to go from one area there's nothing in that area which you normally would push pole or wade and you need to go to another, then you need to be able to po- pop up in a in a shallow water boat mm-hmm. so That's what I do most of the time and nowadays I spend more time fishing for drum and redfish primarily because less people enjoy uh, the idea, they don't say, oh my gosh, black drum, who wants to catch one of those? Well, it's one of the best eating fishes around Mm -hmm. and it's, uh, it's in tremendous numbers. The last time I heard from the researchers, there's about six times as many biomass. And for biomass, if nobody understands that, that's just basically understood understood to be the, the amount of uh, yes, certain fish species. Uh, but there's more drum out there, and they're extremely sporting in shallow water. And when they're digging and tailing, they look much like a redfish, and they can be much more difficult to catch. And to catch them on artificials is something else. So that's what I do mostly now. Is And uh, a bunch of doctor buddies and I go, and sometimes we give these fish to uh, people who, a little bit less fortunate, or yes, or maybe they have disease states. So that's where I am now at this point in life.
0: Well, that's cool. And and so it's funny you mentioned the ma- the whaler because uh, talking with uh, Jay Watkins in in a, in uh, the first season, I think it was a, uh, episode two, he mentioned that uh, seeing your whaler out in Baffin in the complex in the Upper Laguna Madre, and and uh, he was he was kind of referring to your whale. He's like, yeah, let's see that whaler, and he's like. Uh, there's Mike Blackwood, you know, so it, it's a very, very uh, recognizable boat. Uh, was that the one that you actually brought the stake record in? Uh, that day I was actually fishing with two other friends in their boat,
1: but I was down the lagoon in that whaler. Mm-hmm. But the whaler, the beauty of any small boat uh, is that there's not much cleanup to it. It's mm-hmm. very economical. And the whalers are foam in, in the hull, so basically they can't sink. You can, you've seen the ad where they'll cut them in half. And it's been ideal for me whenever I don't want to use a bigger boat. I've had, like I still have a Robolo, big 20-footer. I used to go take five and six guys down, and we would all uh, get out with our w- wading belts and go off and fish. But uh, this kind of went to the wayside here when we got more jet drives, airboats, mm-hmm. and, uh, and some, shall we say, less than... Uh, sportsmanlike behaviors all of a sudden you can't just go wading out you've got to be able to move on if someone runs down a shoreline or Mm -hmm. goes goes in the path you're trying to wade so that's where I progressed the whaler I can easily pop it back up I just need to if I'm in real shallow I can push pole out to water that that is you know deep or so and I can get on plane my Texas skiff I can it was a tunnel drive and I can pop it up and in uh, basically booty deep water. Mm -hmm. But it's a big boat, harder to push pole. And push poling, I keep mentioning that, that's just basically the way to find fish. And uh, wading is great as long as the water's not bottomless Mm -hmm. because we have now, we have a buildup in a lot of the Laguna Madre of mud where grass has died or been blown up on shore by storms. And so, a lot of the fish like to hang out in there. The reds, big trout like it. Mm-hmm. Problem it. problem is, if you're trying to wade in it, all of a sudden you walk off in one of these, and one minute you're in six inches of water, the next minute you're up to your waist. And you got to figure out how do I get out of this, and plus it's noisy. Mm-hmm. So the push-pulling is, there's a lot of people now are getting into this. You'll see a lot of these uh, little uh, fl- Florida skiffs, mm-hmm. and uh, they work extremely well. So that's what I fish with most of the time is the whaler, because... Again, I can be in and out of the water at the drop of a hat, and uh, I can, uh, shall we say, run all the way from Corpus Christi down almost to the land cut and back on six gallons of gas. So that's that's very nice. It's just that you have to know the flats and know the water and also know the weather and be patient enough that if you see bad storms to avoid it. So there's a lot of things go into being successful at some of this, and the main thing is don't get yourself killed
0: trying to do something you shouldn't (laughs) right now. So, you know, talking about, you know, running down in in a Baffin uh, area or down in Laguna Madre, you know, for us now as kind of the the younger generation with GPS and and depth finders and things of that nature. um, It's kind of all at your fingertips, right? Back in the day, though, I mean, talk talk to us a little bit about that. How did you learn like all these rock structures and all these hazards and and how to navigate kind of the upper Laguna Madre and Cathead and, Uh and Baffin? You have to basically understand one thing: is the, I don't care how good a GPS
1: or how good all this uh, stuff is about. Uh, the problem is you get varying depths. When the Laguna Madre, you can have a difference in depth of as much as three to five feet in a year. Okay, all of a sudden the one reef that's rocks is uh, down two and a half three feet, and I'll tell you, you go back down two weeks later, and all of a sudden it's a two inches under the surface. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes an obstacle when it wasn't one. And so that's how a lot of people get in trouble. It's like I remember in a prop shot, a guy came in that was a guide, and he was telling the, the guy that was getting ready to work on a prop that looked like somebody had taken a ball-ping hammer to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, saying, yeah, I've got 167 uh, rocks GPS on my deal. And I said, it "Was that 168? <laughs> and I don't think he thought that was very funny, but it kind of gives you an idea how a lot of people learn is they just run hell-bent for leather. And uh, the best thing to do is to go into areas on days when it's rather calm, water's clear, and just almost sacrifice the day to finding out in your own memory. Because your memory, I hate to tell you, or I do, I don't hate to tell you, <laughs> is your memory is going to be a lot better than GPS. I had a doctor buddy wanted to GPS a pass through the point of rocks. And the thing was, I was running through a gap that is not as not even as wide as a lane of traffic. And so I don't know how good that GPS coming off that satellite is going to get him in a, in a $30,000 rig with a $25,000 motor through that gap just exactly right. And if he varies by six feet uh, or two feet, all of a sudden he's got a lower unit he's got to replace. So <laughs> that's the best thing to do is go down in, and, and it, sometimes it's sacrifice. You just basically have to run around. And you'll get in some fishing, but also you'll find things that you didn't even know were there. In fact, some of the things that are, I know that are there now, I haven't seen in years. Hmm. But I remember where they were. There's a reef that's up in Baffin. I haven't seen it in years. I know it's there. And I know at times that the fish like to congregate along. it. And it's in about five feet of water. Yeah. And so I know where it is, even though I haven't seen it in years. hmm and so a lot of it I'm talking about is your memory, and you can GPS and walk all this stuff down, but it's going to change, and like when I go south to fish for drum or red, one minute I'm fishing a mile from where I was fishing the previous day, because all of a sudden you've got a a uh, low-pressure area move in, and it's shove the water out, and then you high pressure in, shove the water in, and you have to be aware of this when you're running, and uh, So that's the best thing to learn, and the most important thing to learn is that I think for all sportsmen is if you're going to go down to have a good day, make sure that you spend most of your time not ruining somebody else's day, which is becoming a real problem. Uh, We basically are are creatures that we want things easy. Everybody wants to have things yesterday. Mm -hmm. They don't want to achieve it and, uh, shall we say, work on it. And that's the thing is the, the best things in life, you have to earn yourself and do yourself. It's like I build my fishing lures. I can build a lure. After 40 years of doing this, I build lures specifically for certain conditions. And I've studied the physics of, of Vortex Spinoff. If nobody, anybody, I know you're in the Air Force, you know what I'm talking yes, about. Sir. what What gets a, a plane up in the air. Well, I, I have uh, the ability uh, to understand that as well and use that to help design lures. But the key element, as I said, is to try to figure out how do I fish an area without running right through all the best fishing areas? Because creatures of habit is a a condition that all fish and all animals have. And if you run through them and run over them enough in shallow water, they're not gonna be in that area as much. They're gonna, it's no different than uh, deer or elk or anything else, if you keep running through where their bedroom is, Uh, they're not going to be there. And so trying to figure out how do I get to these areas to fish without running either right in front of where somebody else is polling or walking or waiting, and also how do I approach a flat without running right up right through the area that I'm going to then be wading through. Mm -hmm. So you see people that for some reason they've got these uh, boats with towers that are 15 feet high. Yeah. And uh, that. It we, Well, you we have all sorts of words for them. Some I can't say on the radio. <laughs> yeah. But the bottom line is they're looking for a simplified method of, of finding fish. And uh, we had some people down here, some guides that were doing what they called uh, run and run and shoot. And they used to see big schools of redfish. You go back t- 30 years, sometimes you'd see these things. And they would run the fish and then try to get upwind of them and shut off real fast and everybody would throw into them. And the redfish big schools, sometimes the fish are, they don't know what the heck, they feel safe in groups, mm-hmm. and they'd hit, and they'd get a bunch of fish. I ha- have not seen big schools in quite a bit, quite a while. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, that eliminates the ability for the, you to catch a lot of those fish if you were to wade them. I remember wading into schools that I saw from half a mile away that would see them take off and see their wake, and we'd get out and wade into them, and instead of catching one or two fish, we'd catch fish all day mm-hmm. so as i said the, the way to get into those flats and a way to learn all that stuff is to move slowly do as much
0: waiting as you can while you're young uh, I, i'm still able to do it but it's not easy yes sir so well a couple things there and so the first that i have before i get to that next point is so how many man hours do you think you have down in like the baffin complex if you could kind of put it into words
1: Oh, I don't know how you would put that into words because I don't do as much you, nowadays as I used to. But I, when I go down, I mean, it's from the first time I leave till the time I get back, I'm studying, looking at the water, the wind, the tide, the water color, uh, how much grass is in certain areas, uh, if we don't have grass, yeah. if we see bird. So if you're talking about from the time I have been fishing, uh, my heavens, I'm guessing... If you turned it into 50, 60 years. days, probably probably five to 10 years. Wow. Because a lot of times in the old days, I would be fishing uh, every weekend for mm-hmm. the whole weekend. Sometimes I'd sneak off during the week and fish in the evening or early morning and be back. I used to pick up some doctors and we'd go fishing for a while. And uh, so that it, it's a lot of time. And it's a learning experience. Every day you learn something new. I'll never stop learning. Yes, no sir. one ever
0: stops learning. If you think that you've learned it all, you're in real trouble. <laughs> I know, right? And so, all right. So, uh, back to my second point, though. And you kind of touch on it a little bit, particularly with these fish and kind of fish behaviors, which is important because uh, Chad Pederick and I were talking about it last year, particularly down in the Baffin <clears> Complex, <throat> um, where we're talking about fish and, and them kind of being creatures of habit. And then now, kind of man and being more evolved as anglers and, in and, and mariners and, and now, you know, using, um, like machine, like boats to get places that they were never intended to go before. Right. And so now, you know, boats are running in places that they've never been able to run and, and anglers have been able to fish, you know, places where they probably hadn't been able to fish before, before just because they hadn't been able to run. So, Do you believe that fish have, you know, or particularly in that complex have changed kind of their behaviors? And so in Pedrick's podcast, we talked about them, you know, the fish can kind of sense that and they'll actually change their behavior versus, you know, based off of man's kind of creature of habit behaviors. You know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. It's just like, take a look at what the, uh, what the old ranchers learned about herding cattle.
1: If you want to keep them moving, you just keep running up behind them and you keep moving them to where you want them to go. The problem is fish don't behave that way. They're going to go to areas where you can't get to them. Or shall we say that you can't see them. If if you're doing what I do, which is looking for fish, sight casting to them and having them hit your lures that you're wanting to to hit, and then you have to have specific lures for that particular situation. Uh, If you're running these shallows... One thing that is very straightforward is if you run a shoreline, you've actually destroyed your own fishing or somebody else's fishing for that shoreline for at least one to two hours, Mm -hmm. a minimum of one to two hours. I've seen people run down shorelines where uh, I was push-pulling for trout, and I'd seen several, and somebody would just run right by and run in front of me, loop around me and go right down the shoreline, and then all of a sudden stop. And when I'd get up to them, I'd pop up and run down to them and ask them what they were trying to do. And they said, well, we're trying to spot some fish to cast at. And I said, well, the problem is by the time you see them mm-hmm. and, uh, and they're already alerted that you're there, it's uh, as if if you were a deer hunter and all of a sudden you're driving in, in the, in the uh, pear flats and all of a sudden you see the deer take off at several hundred yards. Guess what? Your chance of getting close enough for a shot on that deer is gone for the day. Yeah. So the question is, is there any value to running shorelines? And the only value is for the person driving the boat is they get to have a good old fun time. (laughs) Kind of like we used to have the problem on Padre. You'll hear about people using dune buggies. You don't hear much about dune buggies anymore. There used to be people like to run around on Padre Island and run around in big wheel vehicles and run up and down destroying the dunes. And yeah, that was fun to that individual person. It's just like there's lots of shows on TV now Mm -hmm. about people and motorcycles and so forth enjoying themselves, except most of them are in controlled environments where they're not destroying the the natural order of things. And so if you're running in the shallows, you're just guaranteed that that shoreline will not be any good Mm -hmm. for a minimum of two to three hours, if at all. And if you see a fish, guess what? There's a simple rule that I apply to all fishing, is if you see one fish, there's 10 that you didn't see. So anytime you see one, I've had guys that I took flats fishing, and uh, we, they'd go through school after school of fish, and I'd see 15, 20, 30, and then go to, go through another school. And then all of a sudden, I, I'm describing actually one fishing trip with a f- real nice gentleman that had no intent what he was doing. I had two or three doctor buddies, and they're, they're laughing. They see me looking and putting my hands up like, what are we doing? And we get back to, to stop, and and he says, Well, what are you what areas do y'all want to check out? And I and I finally just asked him point blank, I said, What are you looking for? Mm-hmm. If you're looking for a great big school to hold still and for us to just stand around in a circle and cast at it, those don't exist. They never did. Those mm-hmm. fish are gonna move. They respond to stimulus of, of being afraid, of being run by and so forth. So uh, things like that have kind of changed what you was calling earlier a changing behavior of the fish the fish don't go as shallow anymore like they used to they used to stay shallow mm-hmm. big like big trout big trout they're old they're a minimum of five uh, five six years old Kyle Speller was a biologist down here and he said most of the fish when he checked the otoliths that he got from big trout they were less than less than 10 years old eight mm-hmm. or nine years was max but those fish they're like your grandmother and your grandfather. They can't move real fast anymore. So anytime they move, they better get something to eat, or guess what, they're going to die pretty quick because they're not going to get enough nutrition. So if all of a sudden you run over them in the flats, they move out and they don't get anything to eat. And you run over them again and they do that. Well, all of a sudden they've got to find a place where they can feed and catch enough food where they don't burn enough of their body fats uh, to keep alive. And they're going to do this. It's going to be a quieter area, and that depends on where that is. A lot of times now it's the channels, mm-hmm. it's out in the deep water. And even then, they're going to be conscious of hearing boats run by and say, Well, we don't. They're thinking to themselves, They're not that smart, but they're smart enough to know that that noise means we can't just eat anything that comes by. We've got to be cautious. And uh, so that's, that's one of the key issues that's going to have to be faced in the future. Uh, different states have already faced this and come up with rules and regulations. You have places like Colorado, New Mexico have special waters where only certain types of lures are used and no motorized uh, boats. I so mean, mm-hmm. there's lakes that you can only get in with a, 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 basically a big inner tube.
0: Yeah, Florida was the same way. So I, yep. I, I just moved back from Florida. Mosquito Lagoon is definitely off limits, or a portion of Mosquito Lagoon is off limits to motorized uh, vessels. And so you can only get in there either with like a paddleboard or a kayak. Uh, and I think it can be less than like 9.9 horsepower yep. if you are using one. Just now because they're, they're so cognizant of, of basically keeping the estuary in its, in its most natural state. You know, and, it, and it's a lot more difficult to fish because it's a lot more difficult to access. But the fishing can be really, really good in those areas because it is kind of somewhat untouched. Well, half of
1: the fishing that, for example, that we do now, even like when I go into B- the Baffin Complex, I tried to go two times this year when I saw as many as 30 or so boats pulled up on one area basically known as the Tide Gauge Bar, which mm-hmm. has become famous for it's a big old long sandbar. And uh, it's varies in depth. It's uh, normally got fairly clear water. And uh, guides like to use it, pull in there with their... Boats and everybody gets out with a bait bucket with a bunch of croaker or whatever, mm-hmm. and they're just out there covering it up. And so all of a sudden, that area has already been run pretty heavily. Uh, boats are coming, and going. Some of them are, in fact, some of them actually run the bar itself, uh, pointing at things like like George Washington crossing the Delaware, pointing <laughs> their fingers and look at this, look at that, without. And I I don't know if they really think about it that they are educating the fish that they may want to catch. To where they can't catch them mm-hmm. if they're down there for pure running around hey fine do that in carpus christi or do that out in a a, a turn basin where you can go to water skiing or jet skiing or whatever you want to do Yes, sir. but when you go into good fishing areas treat them with respect think about the guys in colorado they're fishing a stream and will sometimes go on hands and knees to try to keep from throwing their shadow on the on the uh, a pool just so that they can make a cast at a single rising fish but they're damn successful, pardon my expression. No, uh, And that's, you have to, because the fish, if the fish knows you're there, then the odds of you catching it is basically almost nil. Redfish are strange. Redfish sometimes will instinctively hit, and they can, but a trout is not that way. Mm-hmm. Trout, trout. Uh, I've, I've gone on shore, gotten on shorelines where people were all over the place running by, and I'll see 30 and 40 trout, and I haven't gotten one to even come look at the lure. They run from it they'll Mm -hmm. hear the lure hit and they're running. So So, that basically ends the possibility of catching them. And I still enjoy watching them, but I'd like to catch
0: one ever so often. (laughs) This season we'd like to recognize one of our newest sponsors, and that is Down South Lures. From their regular 4-inch southern shad to the 5-inch supermodel and versatile 3-inch burner Shads, it's easy to see why these baits have become a go-to for many Texas anglers. Designed with their unique hybrid tail, It's natural swims in the fall action produces big trout not only here in the Texas coast, but across all estuaries. Aside from that though, they're made right here in the USA. So be sure to support this Texas brand that supports you in pursuit of that next big bite. Real Sportswear humbly started making shirts for a few local fishermen. Rooted in simplicity and utility, Real's minimalist approach is a reflection of what binds the fishing industry together now found throughout many coastal retailers, their lineup of comfortable and functional gear aims to make your time in the water a success. So next time you're gearing up, wear what guides wear and consider real sportswear. Mirror Lore is an iconic inshore fishing lure company found in every angler's arsenal. From their legendary lineup of lures such as the Top Dog and Catch 2000 to their versatile soft plastics like the Little John and Marsh Minnow, These lures not only catch fish, but have produced for decades. So whether it's a 17MR or a Paul Brown Cerise Fatboy, always remember to tie on a mirror lure and turn on the bite. Texas Custom Lures and the original Custom Corky have been podcast sponsors for the first two seasons and we're incredibly appreciative. This Texas brand with inputs from the most respectable guides across the Texas coast complete every big trout angler's arsenal with great fish catching colors. My personal favorites, Texas turnip, bay mistress, plum nasty, to name a few. It's easy to see how these things produce time and time again. So next time you're targeting that next big bite, I highly encourage you to fish the original custom Corky. And remember the big girls aren't colorblind. No. So, all right. So that's, That's then and now, right? Tell us a little bit about kind of the past, right? And you talking about those fish and how they were kind of roaming in schools. I know you were kind of talking to me a little bit the other day where you were in, you know, again, going back to uh, Mr. Jay Watkins or Captain Jay Watkins podcast, where we're saying that you were pulling your Boston Wheeler backwards to be less stealthy, right? Um, But talk to us about the past uh, some of those schools that you would see, because the ones, the, sh- the story you shared with me is that you were passing up, you'd see a giant school of trout, uh, with six sevens and eights in it. And you were really looking for a super special fish. So tell us a little bit about some of those stories of old, uh, and some of the, the, the unique, uh, circumstances that you've seen in either the Baffin complex or the Upper Laguna Madre. Well, there weren't really many people that actually did what I'm describing that
1: the hunting for the big trout back in the, uh, from 1975 through about 2000. Uh, there were, so I, I got very lucky, very, very lucky. I got to see a lot of different things, and of course I changed the location of where I would fish. Uh, the major thing I was trying to look for was areas that had good habitat for the fish, but also less people running around. Mm-hmm. And I, it's really that simple. If you don't have a lot of people running through an area, the chance of the fish being alerted Or not shall we say being looking to eat is better so uh, I can go back to some of the years like uh, the classic uh, that most people have heard about in 1996 when we had a about a two-week time frame in Baffin Bay where the water turned beautiful green and there were groups of large trout all over the place and I had one one day on what I call the fish hook bar where I probably saw 75 to 100 trout that ranged from 26 inches up to 33 and a quarter, which is the biggest fish I caught that day. And the whole deal was uh, to not necessarily catch the fish, but to catch the fish you wanted to. And the fish we were looking at a while ago that's on the wall there, it was one of the starfish, uh, that one was cruising with, a, with two smaller males, and I went by it push polling and it's to the side of me, and I had to wait till it got off a little further away. Luckily, it was fairly calm as they cruised by because I didn't want to bring it by too close because the males were going to beat that female to the lure. no question about it. Mm-hmm. They're interested in, in uh, shall we say sp- fertilizing the spawn, <laughs> but they're more but uh, they're also will eat anything and trying to get it close. And so I had to wait, cast it to the side, bring the lure up just to the side two and a half feet away. And then keep twitching it. And that was about, and I caught that fish, and that was about the 25 or 26 big trout I caught that day. And uh, and so that one's a 33 and a quarter right behind me. Yeah, and that's, so, that's the one. That was a mid, mid-June. And, of course, that was, most of the time I didn't ride really, I quit, I used to fish a lot of fishing tournaments, basically greed. Uh, everybody likes money and, yes, and gifts. I've got all sorts of things. I've been happy and been lucky enough to win. And uh, so I don't fish many contests at all anymore. In fact, I don't try to compete in any of this stuff. It's kind of like uh, the competition is not as much fun as it once was. Yes, sir. Because it's, 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 it's gotten to be where I can't really compete anymore simply because I'm not going to do what some people will do to catch the fish because I'm not going to blind fish an area. Like nowadays, people fish for big trout. They have basically the idea they want to fish like Baffin Complex. They want to fish it in the wintertime. When the fish are the heaviest from from not spawning, they've eaten a lot. Of, they're just laying around getting fat and fat. And they're not lazy, but they're getting fat. But uh, so those fish, uh, I just don't get a chance at them very often because mm-hmm. plus also the weather in uh, the Baffin complex has gotten quite different and the water depth has gotten quite different. The water is on average, I would say, a foot and a half higher tides, I mean, year-round. Uh-oh. Why is that, Why is Mike? My- uh, well, it's, we, we all heard of the term global warming. Right. Well, okay. it's a reality. It's just like there will be global cooling again someday. It goes back and forth. And in my life, I've seen, well, it's like my favorite thing used to be to hunt geese at Chapman Ranch. There are no geese at Chapman Ranch anymore. They quit being there. There's no water, mm-hmm. there's no crops left. It's just the changing behavior of people has done this. Well, in the case of global warming, I mean, there's so many actors involved in that. I mean, everybody wants to think that, yeah. that the United States is most to blame when you look at the actual carbon emissions and so forth that are causing a lot of this, come mainly from Indonesia, China, mm-hmm. and areas we don't control. And we're not going to be able to talk them into it because they're interested in <laughs> just getting enough food to eat. So part of the problem is going to be trying to get people to understand and uh, that if they do these things enough times, all of a sudden what they enjoy doing disappears. So, and so that's what's happened is the tide's higher. Uh, the water is not as clear as it used to be. There's less grass. Interesting. Uh, <clears throat> less fresh water coming in because everybody wants to give water to their, to their uh, cattle. Uh, they want to water their lawns and so forth. In South Texas, Laguna Madre, I'm guessing there's probably t- 15 to 20 times the amount of boats I may be underestimating. I'm mm-hmm. probably close to 50 times as many boats as there was when it was really good fishing because you could go down there and you could fish all day. Like the fish that I caught that I described earlier, the big fish. Yes, sir. I was catching big trout off that what I call the fish hook bar. I was catching them till 6 o'clock in the evening. So you caught 26 that day. Like uh, No, what was I the actually, I-, I caught, I don't know how many I caught. <laughs> I think about 32 or 33 was the count on that. And how it, big were they on well, average? Well, I kept. I kept 10 fish and I was trying to hook them quickly so I didn't throw them because if I throw one, I've got to keep it. Mm-hmm. And so if I catch it, and uh, the only reason I kept that bigger one was basic greed. I mean, I, I everybody would like to have a boat motor and trailers extra, so it <laughs> makes Christmas real easy that year. <laughs> yes, so uh, that I kept that fish because I knew how big it was. And I'd already kept one other fish I shouldn't have that was a, a 10-6 oh that uh, would have also won it, but... Uh, But the bottom line is I was having a great time using some of my homemade lures. And uh, so I was just casting at fish I wanted to catch and trying to catch them and get them off the hook quickly. But uh, these fish were actually too aggressive. They were taking it pretty deep. So it was quite a task just to keep from getting it all the way into their throat. So how, how big was that stringer of 10 fish? How, the stringer, the guess. stringer, we weighed it at Roy's Bait and Tackle uh, later in the day, and if I remember right, the average weight—if uh, you average all the different fish together—it was an average of about 8.7 pounds oh, per fish. Goodness. And uh, I let several fish go that were quite bigger than that, mm-hmm. but uh, luckily I lip-hooked them, and so as a result, could let them go. But again, that time—that time—is unfortunately pretty much passed because that area gets heavily fished right. uh, by people every day all all year long non-stop winter summer you name it just depends on what they're using for bait or whatever mm-hmm. and uh just like most of baffin is that way nowadays yeah so 10 fish close to 100 pounds yeah it's that well is... it's, it's it was was not difficult i used to uh, you know we when you when you have if you have a place kind of to yourself and uh there's not a lot of boats running around, and you're being very quiet and cautious, and you're push-pulling and zigging back and forth, and the wind's not high and the water's fairly clear. You can see these fish, and uh, they're trying to feed. They're hungry. They're up, that's what they're up there for. Mm-hmm. And yeah, some of them are up there to spawn as well, but uh, uh, that's why the male trout are there. They want to fertilize it. So, anyway, uh, it's just if the situation is mild enough, and unfortunately, that's probably going to have to be some type of thing in the future is to cut down on the idea of of a trout Uh, like right now i honestly think although a lot of people like yourself love to fish for the big fish most people including guides think of it as a box fish uh, to fill up the box and and, then now we got some fillets for tonight. and it doesn't matter how many you're keeping and what size you're keeping that is cutting down on the amount of potential fish that are going to eventually reach bigger size so we're going to see uh, changes in, in uh, regulations mm-hmm. that are going to occur, probably not in my lifetime, but you're going to see special waters that maybe only lures can be used and maybe it's all catch and release during certain – look at Flounder, how they're also doing right, that. Right. So as we recognize the problems, uh, we're going to have to adjust to them. And I, Unfortunately for everybody else, they can't go back and get to do what I got to do because I had the advantage of good equipment, good lures, spend a lot of time messing with them, trying to figure out exactly this, how to design them, weight adjustments mm-hmm. to make them do what I wanted them to do. So, And I didn't have to compete at that time with the numbers of people, people. that are down there, yeah. particularly, and, and I understand uh, everybody wants to have a good time, but if they'll just try to not have a good time interfering with other people's efforts to have a good time, if you're too late to a spot, don't try to come in on top of somebody. You yeah. see these pictures of people in the north after the spawn, after the truck has released from the hatchery, all these fish, and you'll see twenty guys in a circle mm-hmm.
0: trying to throw their their bait into this hole to catch the trout. I hope we don't get to that point. Yeah. Now, okay, so you know, talking with you at Ananias Fishing Club that night, um, I didn't realize how kind of instrumental you were into kind of conservation uh in in kind of bringing that mindset right because you had shared a story with me that night um that basically you know you were a commercial god is that correct or you used to? Uh, no i was never commercial okay no i'm i've always i've always been in but you've always let me rephrase that you you did catch and and keep a lot of fish at one point at one time actually i commercial i carried a commercial fishing
1: license from the time i was about 10 or 11 years old Mm -hmm. and some friends of mine uh in fact uh you see there's a schooling corpus named moody that's named after dr foy moody well he used to have a house on ocean drive and the moody boys and i mm-hmm. used to have a fishing club and uh, we'd go catch fish and uh, then our mothers would <laughs> have to take us to the fish market to sell them and we'd get that was our, our spending money so as a result uh, we had to have a commercial license by law and so therefore i paid my dollars and 50 cents or whatever it was and i got my 14 to 15 cents a pound for my trout and redfish and so up until the time we started seeing a problem with fishing back in the uh, late 60s early 70s and the increase in pressure on them and the use of gill nets and and everything in the world to, to get fish for sale uh it was fairly easy for us mm-hmm. and so as a result it, it, it beat the heck out of being, becoming a, a, a bank robber or whatever. It's a lot, <laughs> lot safer. Yeah. And it was a lot of fun because you caught the fish and then you sold them. So actually, I, I sold fish. And at that time, before CCA was formed, and we actually brought through that law that uh, half of the fish, uh, uh, half of your income pump from fishing, um, uh, at least half of it must come from fishing. If you make more money than that, you cannot sell fish. Mm-hmm. and this was an effort to allow the people who were still true uh, uh, commercial fishermen to let them catch fish and keep their business going but by the same token eliminate excessive catches of large trout which they used the uh, what we call four corner hooks which is a gill net mm-hmm. and uh, and try to catch the large amounts of reds that they, they used to use uh, Use us for example. They'd sit. We knew we could see them putting binoculars on us. Wade fishing shallow. This was before, before uh, tunnel drives, jet drives, and so forth. Airboats. You could not consider those part of the problem. Well, they are the biggest problem coming now because they make so much noise. They cause tremendous changes in the fish behavior Mm -hmm. and fishermen. But that's another story. But we could get up in the shallow waters and uh, you know calf deep uh, and knee deep. And get into these bunches of redfish, and there was no limits back then. We'd catch what we called a strike, Mm -hmm. which was about 15 or 20 nice fish. And then that was about all you could get into an igloo at that time, and so you had to have several of those. And then we'd take them either, and uh, this was back in the late 60s, early 70s, we'd take them and sell them, and that paid for our gas and food, Mm -hmm. and then we'd carry some back for family and whatnot. But then CCA uh, began to realize we had at first an organization called SOS, Save Our Seas. And we had some very unhappy meetings with some commercials got the word on that. And unfortunately, when you see somebody beginning to change your ability to make money, uh, people can get upset. Uh, And so as a result, that sort of thing would uh, eliminate the ability to uh, get them, get to catch the fish like they would like. And uh, so, from Save Our Seas, CCA formed in the late, in the middle to late 60s. I want to say 76 is when we started having our meetings. And at that time, they were having meetings in in Houston. And so, those were the first two groups that formed uh, what was known as GCCA, Gulf Coast Conservation Association. And uh, that was when we got started getting the ideas of hatcheries, and uh, getting the ideas of trying to educate people on how many fish they need to keep because we had seen dramatic changes in our fishing uh, because we had the experience and we had so much background information we could still do just fine we could catch 15 20 fish anytime we wanted to but that would again was 20 30 years ago
0: yeah now uh, while you were talking I was pulling it up on my phone because I shared with this uh, shared this with you before and I wanted to know if that was indeed kind of you and your core group and so, on cca nationals uh website underneath there our story uh talking about how cca was formed basically says and i'll read it verbatim cca was created in 77 after drastic commercial overfishing like you just talked about along the texas coast had decimated redfish and speckled trout populations a group of 14 concerned recreational anglers gathered in a local tackle shop to create a gulf coast conservation association to turn the tide for conservation uh, only four years later gill nets along the Texas coast were outlawed and both red drum and speckled trout uh, speckled trout were declared a game fish and so if I heard you right and this is important for all of our listeners to kind of understand is that you were one of those 14 people that kind of gave way to the GCCA to the CCA and ultimately to regulation and outlaw gill nets along here in the Texas coast is that correct sir that's correct it was a it was a different time
1: Uh we, we were not looked on very happily by some people who either sold fish uh, to uh, fish houses or to restaurants and so forth, began to look at us as a problem. And uh, we were looking at it more as an issue that uh, if we didn't start trying to control the harvesting and the amount of harvest, uh, this is an issue about what's going to happen for the grandkids. Uh, for the kids and and people who want to fish years from now like right now Uh, a lot of this was uh, we realized we were part of the problem like those of us that uh, like myself that uh, kept our fish sold them and so forth that couldn't go on and so basically you might say i put myself out of business because that was a that was a substantial amount of of money but by the same token it was something that had to be because it was not going to keep going you ask you don't see many buffalo hunters around anymore, and you don't see many people hunting passenger pigeons. I mean, the 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 simple rule of all this stuff is you have to stop the excessive taking of anything, any any wildlife-created creature uh, before it reaches the point of no return. I mean, you look at how many years it's taken. Uh, nobody nobody harvests uh, the whooping crane yet. What is there, three hundred in the in the natural flock in, anywhere? Yes, sir. And at one time there was 14, and luckily that barely got stopped, but it's taken a mountain. And that's not a naturally harvested fish uh, like what we're talking about, the trout and redfish. That's the reason now i spent more time catching drum, simply because there's more of them. They're delicious eating. Uh, they're a ball to catch on light tackle, fly mm-hmm. fishing. I've got a lot of people that give me static about that. Uh, I won't go into detail, but a lot of good friends that keep saying that's a glorified, calls it a, a glorified red drum, or a less, less than glorified red drum. And uh, so they don't like to mess with them. But by the same token, uh, they're delicious. Uh, they're fun to catch. And on light tackle, you get a, I'm on an ultralight rig, you're having a ball. So basically we formed the group and uh, a lot of us, it, it was a kind of a difficult, it was kind of a, almost a dangerous time. Some of us had bad phone calls. Uh, I traveled around with a shotgun in the boat because I received threats. In fact, I got nicknamed the Laguna Madre Deep Throat for a while hmm. because I turned in gill nets and so forth. I started driving around in my boat standing up, not necessarily because I was wanting to look for fish, but I was wanting to look for what I call, they call ghost nets, which is really a gill net that is anchored with the green uh, line, the green main line, just five, six inches below the surface because they didn't want the floats visible mm-hmm. so that a game warden could see them. And uh, I hit one of those one time, and I ricocheted across the front of my boat and was unconscious for a short time hitting the ICS. So this was something that uh, I remember Paul Wimberly, one of the other founders, had to hold some guys at, at gunpoint because he found their gill nets, hmm. And uh, so it was, I, I could go into detail. Some of the stories are, they're semi-funny now. Uh, uh, some of the chases that some of the, best game wardens in the history of the state of Texas, which we worked with a lot, got to be good friends with them. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so some of them were very extremely beneficial. Without them, we couldn't have got anything. That's the reason we were able to donate things like night vision, binoculars, and so forth that
0: they could not get on a regular basis through state funding. And
1: we still do things like that.
0: Yeah. But uh, so as a guy uh, who's going to turn 40 in January uh, in kind of the, you know, younger generation of anglers you know one thank you for doing that right and standing up and seeing the return on investment by again kind of putting your own personal wants and desires and and again financial gain uh by the wayside and in recognizing that there's a problem or or a potential problem going forward and seeing the value in a fishery as a game or, or speckled trout and redfish as a game fish And in standing up to that and in enduring those encounters, you know, and that's, that's the importance of this podcast. And that's, it's a, it's a very surreal moment to be able to talk to you. And I hope people that are listening to this podcast understand that the history and why you have such a prolific, even to this day, uh, where it's still a very, very good resource here on the Texas coast is because of the man who's literally sitting about, now we're, it's COVID, <laughs> so greater than six feet, probably about what eight feet, Mr. Mike, about but twelve sit, feet, <laughs> yeah, about twelve <laughs> feet away. But nonetheless, uh, I'm sitting twelve uh, feet away from really a pioneer, uh, in a in a legend in that regard for standing up for a fishery and a future of a fishery. And he lives here in Corpus Christi, and he's here to tell that story, and that's important. And so, thank you again, uh, Mike. I, I really appreciate kind of everything that you've done uh, for our fishery. Well, you stop and think about it. I think
1: the nicest part about it that I see is when we put on some of our first banquets to raise money uh, back in the late 70s to be able to lobby in Austin and send people up there, get some of the people interested in it. Uh, I think one of our first banquets, we maybe had 200 and some odd people, and we were very pleased with that. Now, then, the average Carpus banquet is close to 3,000. That's crazy.
0: And uh, and it's because of you guys. I mean, 14 well, people. Like,
1: everything starts somewhere. There's always a start. And uh, it's just like there's an end. It's like my participation uh, that I used to do when I used to be the head of different committees with the DCCA, And uh, that stopped a few years ago simply because there were younger people that had more they more like yourself. They were more interested in it. They were still doing it, And uh, they were wanting to see how it could get better. And sometimes, uh, like I still sit on, I think, a a consulting committee. And sometimes I have to offer an opinion of what they do and what they what they shouldn't do that would affect the future of it. But the main thing to keep in mind is to be observant. When something doesn't look like it should be the way to do things. It probably isn't, and you need to find a better way to do it. And so that's the reason CCA keeps looking at better ways to create uh, offshore fishing, create better better inshore fishing, preserve ga- grass flats, uh, learn to understand the different grasses that we have down here because both uh, all of them, all the I think there's four or five different grasses we have in the lagoon, all serve a different purpose, but they all serve a different value to the ecosystem that supports. Our game fish; they support the little bait fish that eventually can end up being the food source for the bigger fish. So, yeah. uh, understanding every time you hear about people talking about not running through grass flats, so forth, it's not the the grass flats will come back. That's that's the good news. There's grass is pretty smart. Yeah. You you go through there, and as the trough guns run through it, it doesn't look very nice. But the trout and redfish will use it to hide from the bait fish. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. you'll see some lovely fish hiding in there. But the key element is the high amount of noise that is going on and uh, that noise is what all of a sudden makes it where those flats are no good anymore because the fish aren't coming into those. Now then half the fish that we see are not in the super clear water anymore, they're in the murky water. And you have to stare at them until your eyes pop out <laughs> to be able to see them because the water's so off color and you have to be able to identify all the anatomy of the fish to figure out where that fish's head is, where the tail is. How close can I get the lure? What type of lure should I use? What is it feeding on? And you have to go through all that while you're out there bogging around in that goo or push-pulling down a flat. So it's, it's, it's a changing deal. And so actually I like to fish slightly what we call, some people call it trout water, where just a light melt to it mm-hmm. because I can still see into it, and I can see the fish. And so like I tell people, the, the key thing to learning to fish in the flats Is not to see everything that's there, to look for something that shouldn't be there. Like all of a sudden the current's going one way and all of a sudden you see reddish or bluish dots going in the opposite direction. You know that's got to be a fish Mm -hmm. of some kind because water doesn't go against the current. So you know there's something going on and that's the first hint to let you understand what the fish is. Like half the time these big trout, all you see is a black line if they're in the grass, if they're hiding in ambush. Sometimes you'll see their tail sticking up where they're just basically... Are sitting there where their, their air float in their belly is mm-hmm. slightly inflated so that their head is down and the tail's only part that's sticking up. And uh, th- that's a different story entirely, but those are a lot of fun to fish for because you have to wake them up uh, to a surface bait. Yeah. And, uh, but you can catch those fish too. What? But, ag- but again, it's all about having to see that. I just don't see that much what I'm describing. I used to see that a lot 15, 20 years ago. I don't see it at all anymore. Hmm. I see. I don't even see redfish tailing that much. Redfish cruise a lot more nowadays. Yeah. They look like a serpentine snake cruising through the water. Yes, sir. The, the fish that tails the most is Drum and a sheephead. <laughs> which you like to catch. <laughs> which you're great to catch. <laughs> yeah. Because no. the good news is, again, they're commercially fish, but they've survived. They're tremendous survivors. Uh, Drum, in fact, that's one of the reasons... Uh, Scott Murray has done, been involved in, and the CCA has been involved in a bunch of studies having to do with the, the different types of uh, bait fish, uh, not bait fish, uh, shellfish mm-hmm. that the drum love could drum are famous for massive numbers of them. I've seen schools of them that would go for a half a mile. I've gone, driven through shallow water. I say shallow, you know, four or five feet deep water, green to color. And as I'm getting to it, it starts turning reddish brown. Because they're all taking off as a school. And you just see the water upwelling like a boat or torpedoes going sure. through the water. And it's most of the time it's drum. It's good. But the drum, uh, the good news for them is there's enough of them. And uh, that if you learn how to catch them, hey, you can catch five in a day. And yeah. keep five. And they're delicious eating. <laughs> and that way, guess what? The, the nice redfish that are the sport fish and the trout, they don't. you don't have to keep any that day. <laughs> yeah, no. So So basically it's altering. What you have always done, it's like I haven't kept a large trout. I can't remember keeping a trout over 23, 24 inches in several years. I don't even remember the last one I kept. But uh, just because, well, from peer pressure, from people telling me they don't want me keeping all these big fish, they they should be catch and release, so I I don't need them. So I catch drum for eating, and I'll catch a redfish or two because we've got a great hatchery that is— Ah, uh, producing massive amounts of those in carpus, and we got two other hatcheries and hatcheries popping up all over that are putting back more redfish. because and that's another story. there's there's the the what they call the escapement amount that goes into the gulf to normally create the the mouse of, of floating little larvae that may eventually make our redfish that come back in yeah. and that we all catch. They're not escaping, What is it three to five percent last time I looked. Wow. So the fish hatchery, guess what? it's released their uh, their escapement is 100 percent
0: yeah only they're all the little fish and the good news is they grow up quick yeah so that's cool so uh, and I, I didn't it all goes back to you guys kind of paving the way and in, in terms of again standing up for kind of the future of the fishery and, and and again thank you for that and and obviously now seeing it's got to kind of warm your heart a little bit to kind of see you know uh, not only CCA's involvement, and uh, but you know, for the, from a hatchery perspective, and now introducing you know game fish back into the fishery, and that started with you guys. So again, thanks, Mr. Mike. Hey everyone, just want to say thanks again for listening to part one of our part two episode with Mr. Mike Blackwood. Really appreciate his time and being able to sit down and talk to him. Part two's got more of the same. Just amazing conversation. More specific with listening to some of the input and what he saw kind of along the coast throughout both of the freezes in the 80s here along the Texas coast and the amount of really large trout uh, that he got to see and and things of that nature. So uh, hopefully you enjoyed part one. Stay tuned for part two. Gotta again give a shout out to our sponsors, Down South Lores, Real Sportswear, Mirror Lure, Texas Custom Lures, and the original Custom Corky, as well as Carbon Line. Show them some love. Really appreciate it. Also, hey, if you're out there listening, whatever platform you're listening on, please rate and review the podcast. We really appreciate it. Good, bad, or indifferent. Always looking for feedback to make these things better. That way we can carry on the conversations with you and bring these to light. So hopefully you enjoy. So until next time, guys, tight lines. God bless. And always remember, take what you need and release the rest. God bless.